Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Those of you who are able, please stand with me as we listen to God's word. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Would you pray with me as we, uh, before we look at this passage? Lord Jesus, we thank you that in your word you tell us things, you give us uh, revelation into realities that are at times very difficult for us to uh, see with our eyes and embrace fully. I pray this morning a passage that perhaps to some of us may be familiar, a passage that certainly would cause us to see the world perhaps with a very new uh, set of eyes. Would you open us up to your word this morning and draw our hearts and our minds and our lives into your story? Would you do this, we ask in your name. Amen. So this is our last uh, Sunday in the Gospel of Matthew. If you've been with us at all since September, uh, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been considering this bigger theme in Matthew and really in the whole Bible, this theme of the kingdom. Jesus begins his ministry by talking about the kingdom, this breaking in of the rule of God into this world, a world of sin and death, a world of sadness, a world of suffering, this inbreaking of God's kingdom that brings the healing and the forgiveness and the wholeness of God's rule. And this morning uh, in our passage in Matthew's gospel, in these few verses, Jesus, the resurrected king, commissions and summons us, his people, to mission. And really, he's giving us, like, this is the mission for our lives. This is what we were made to participate in and live for. So I want us to think about this kingdom mission and four things that I want us to see in this passage that we'll think about this morning. Uh, The first is who Jesus calls. The second, what his kingship means. Third, what our mission entails. And finally, his promise to us. So who he calls, what his kingship means, what our mission entails, and his promise to us. First, who Jesus calls. Some of you uh, may know that I went to Moody Bible Institute for my undergrad, and while I was there, I went to chapel uh, three to four times a week, required chapel. Sometimes I went willingly, sometimes I went unwillingly. Um, I went to a yearly missions conference. I went to a yearly Founders Day preaching conference. And so basically that means that I've probably heard this text preached at least half a dozen times. 
And it could be that I just have a faulty memory, but I don't remember much ever being made of what we see in verse 17, that the 11 disciples are there in Galilee with Jesus, and we read, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. They worshiped, but some doubted. What is going on here? The word that's translated here as doubted, it's used only one other time in the New Testament, and it's in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 14. And it's in this episode where Jesus is walking on water to his disciples who are in a boat, and Peter gets out and decides he's going to walk to Jesus. And he's walking on the water to Jesus, and then he sees the waves, and he sees the wind, and he becomes afraid, and he starts to sink, and he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus takes him, and he, and he you know, brings him out of the water, and he says to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The doubt here is not a settled, hardened unbelief, but it is a hesitating, unsure, doubting faith. And that's what's present among some of the disciples as they're standing there with the risen Jesus. They're there with him. They know that it's him, but mixed with faith and worship is hesitation and doubt. Now, what exactly did they doubt? Uh, various scholars have given different, you know, possibilities. You know, were they unsure that they were going to be received by Jesus? Is that why they're kind of hesitating? I mean, you probably remember that all of them deserted him in his hour of need. Um, are they unsure if they should really worship Jesus as God, I mean, they, they grew up, they're, they're Jewish, and their whole life would have been this strong monotheism, and you don't worship a human being. Is, is that the struggle? Were they just plain, like, overwhelmed? I mean, Jesus died, and they know, just like we do, that dead people stay dead. The text doesn't tell us. Matthew just tells us that in the midst of this worshiping people exists a hesitating, doubting faith. Does that encourage you? I think it should. I think if we're really honest, we know something of this sort of doubting, hesitant faith. If you domesticate Jesus, if you kind of, you know, carve out a really tiny sliver of your life in which he's allowed to do anything, then it's easy not to doubt. If you kind of box Jesus up into a list of doctrinal beliefs and orthodoxies and you have this nice, tight philosophy of religion, sort of Jesus, it can be easy not to doubt. But if we're talking about the resurrected Jesus, if we're talking about a person, the resurrected king, the king over all that is, that is overwhelming. And he is overwhelming. And I think an interesting question for us to consider right at the front is, what do you do with doubt? Many of you know that before I came here to Trinity, I worked with college students at the University of Delaware as a campus minister. And every year I would have a conversation with some freshman, uh, someone who had some kind of connection to Christianity, to the church, maybe they grew up going to church sometimes, but now they were on their own. And like most 18 to 22-year-olds, they had questions. 
Every year I'd be sitting and I'd, have, I'd be having coffee with some student and they would admit that they struggle in some way, struggle to believe something that the Bible says, struggle to fully embrace what Jesus, who Jesus is and what it would mean to follow them. They, there was oftentimes some faith, but there was a hesitation. And almost every single one of them, this is how they would treat it. I really like your group. I really like RUF. It's so great. I love the people. I think I need to step away for a period of time and I need to try to figure out where I really am with this stuff. And then maybe, you know, if I land, then I'll come back. And every year, pretty much, I would whip out this passage and I would say, okay, you doubt. What are you going to do with that? It's a fatal mistake to think that separating yourself from the community of faith is somehow going to help you sort out your hesitations and your doubts. I mean, if you look at the disciples, they worshiped and some doubted, but they were together. They're in Galilee, which means that even the disciples who are hesitant, they traveled from Jerusalem all the way up north to Galilee with the other disciples. And if you go further into the book of Acts in the New Testament, what do you see them doing? They are together. They're worshiping, they're hearing the scriptures, they are praying, they are sharing in the life and the mission of Jesus. And it would appear from their example that the way that you actually deal with doubts and hesitations, the way that you actually come to a confident faith in Jesus and that he's really real to you is that you throw yourself into the life and the mission of Jesus and his church. So, this morning, if you're here and you are like me, you know, you believe in Jesus, you love Jesus, you trust Jesus, but you know that you doubt and you hesitate. You know that you don't fully live into the good news of the resurrection and the reign of Jesus and all that would mean for every part of your life. Or if you're here this morning and you don't believe or you're struggling, you're not sure where you are. What are you going to do with that? Are you living into the community of faith, moving toward Jesus and his kingdom and his mission, or are you retreating and moving away? Would you look at how Jesus responds to the worshiping yet doubting disciples? Verse 18. He moves toward them. He moves toward them with his word, reminding them and telling them who he is, that he is the king. So let's think about that second. What, what, what does his kingship mean? You know, if you were with us last week on Easter, uh, Jeff referenced a poll, a poll of Americans that says two-thirds, 66% of Americans, uh, believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But what does his resurrection mean? Like, what's the significance of that? You see, if it's true that Jesus is raised from the dead, then that reality has to be understood in light of all that God had said in the Old Testament, all of his promises, and it has to be interpreted under that lens. And so, in the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, God promised that one day his kingdom this kingdom of wholeness of, and life, this kingdom of peace and joy, the kingdom of his rule would come 
and he promises that there's gonna be a king. He says there's gonna be a king that's gonna come and he's gonna deal with evil and he's gonna deal with injustice, injustice and he's gonna deal with, with corrupt rulers. It, Psalm two, he's gonna be my king, my anointed one, my Messiah. God promised that there's gonna be this one who's gonna be given dominion and rule and that all nations should come to him, all people should serve him. He's gonna have an everlasting dominion, Daniel chapter seven. One who, in the words of Isaiah 11, is going to rule in such a way that the world is filled with a universal peace, that the knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the world as the water covers the sea. The resurrection of Jesus, it can't be brushed off. I've, I've actually heard people say this before. You, you, you know, it's an interesting fluke occurrence. The world is weird. Weird stuff happens, maybe. It, it can't be domesticated into a sentimental, feel-good, individualized message that is, you know, new beginnings. It's about new beginnings. It means that God is king. It means that the universal cosmic rule of God's kingdom has been established. Four times, if you look in the text, Jesus speaks with this totalizing universal language of all that he is the ruling and reigning king over all. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And it's because of this universal authority and reign that Jesus says, go therefore make disciples of all nations. It's why in verse 20, we're, com we're commanded to teach all that Jesus has taught us, all that he's commanded. And we do this with confidence because the resurrected king is with us. And literally verse 20 reads, he's with us all the days. The resurrection means that Jesus is the cosmic king. And so it's out of this reality that his followers, that the church is sent on mission. Third, let's think about the mission itself. What does the mission entail? If you're a grammar person, uh, in verses 19 through 20, there's one main verb and then there's three participles. The main verb is make disciples. That's the main calling. And then uh, those three participles are going, baptizing, and teaching. If you've been with us at all through this series, we've talked about discipleship uh, through this image of apprenticeship. Like in the ancient world, you may know that, that fathers uh, took their sons and, and their sons learned the trade by being with the father and, and by working with the father they learned the family business. And for all who would believe and follow Jesus, we are to enter into his school, to be apprentices to him, the master, to learn not just information, but to learn a whole new way of life. And learning this way of life obviously means that we want to bring others in, just as we have brought in to learn from Jesus, we want to bring others in to be apprenticed to him. And to do this, we have to go. The prerequisite to making disciples involves movement. Jesus says, go. Uh, a few months ago, you, none of you probably remember, but in, in Matthew chapter 9 and 10, um, a sermon that I did a, a while ago, I referenced the work of this scholar named Eckhart Schnabel, who defines mission with these two words, movement and intention. And this really fits with what we see here. We have to go. 
And so this, this sort of calling, it might lead you to go to Africa, to China, to Haiti, or it might lead you to get in your car and go to the local book club to connect with people in your neighborhood or walk across the street to meet a neighbor. But we have to go. And we go with this intention and this desire to see others come under the apprenticeship of Jesus. And we go because he's the resurrected reigning king. And so this is why we go to all nations, to all peoples, to all cultures. That, that, I mean, that's what flows out of the reality that he's the cosmic king. If he's not risen, then we should just go home and forget all this. But if he is risen, then we have to go and go to all. We go with the intention of making disciples and we do this, verse 19, baptizing into the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see, in baptism, we have a change of identity. I love the way one writer put it. We switch stories. We enter into a new story and therefore a new life. If you think about it, all of us live out of some story. And sometimes that story is a tragic, sad story. Something that we've done or something that's been done to us, it feels like it's marked our lives, that we've been named by it, that it's marked our life, our identity, our story. Sometimes it could be something that we think very positively of, something that we've achieved or something that we've constructed. But whatever it is, we, we have an identity. We have a sense of the story that we're living and therefore what life is really about. And to receive baptism is to switch your story. It's to be named and identified with Jesus and his story. And so if you've been baptized, what it means is that you've been drawn into the story of Jesus Christ. You may remember that Jesus himself is baptized in the beginning of the gospel and he's baptized and he's, the Holy Spirit comes down, he's anointed with the Holy Spirit and the loving words of the Father are pronounced over him, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And if you've been baptized, now in Jesus because of what he has done and all he is for you, that is your story. Loved by the Father, filled with the Spirit, sent out on mission to the world. Now, this means so many things and, and I had to like literally cut so much because I was like, well, how do, what's the significance of our baptism? If you're someone who's been baptized, let me just say this. If you're here this morning or perhaps you're listening on the feed and let's say you're a five or six-year-old and you've been baptized into Christ, do you realize this means that you are a beachhead for the advancing kingdom of God in this world? A kingdom characterized by peace and love and justice and forgiveness and joy. Like you little five or six year old, you are a beachhead for the new creation in and through Jesus. If you've been baptized into Christ, whether you're five or you're 95, it means that your identity, means that the core of who you are actually has nothing to do with anything that you've ever done. 
anything you've created, anything you've constructed. It means that your identity could, the core of who you are could never be your sexuality. It could never be your gender. It could never be your career or your academics. It could never be your family. It could never be your children. It could never be your race. Your identity, your story, is something that has been graciously given to you. In baptism, you're named. You're given a new story. And obviously, living into that, oh my gosh, like living into this new identity of all that we have in Jesus and all that he is for us, that's a whole new way of life, which is why, uh, verse 20, we have to learn and we have to teach others to keep everything that Jesus has commanded. Because if you've been with us at all in Matthew or you just know generally of the teachings of Jesus, the way of Jesus does not come natural. It's unnatural for sinful people to truly forgive one another, to turn the other cheek, to live as if true greatness is being least and last and serving others rather than being served and going first. It's unnatural for sinful people to live for God's kingdom rather than try to build their own, to live for God's glory and his name rather than their own. It's unnatural for us to give up the grip on our lives, to relinquish control, to give our lives away for the joy of knowing Jesus and treasuring him. Quite frankly, this is like incredibly weird, right? This is incredibly weird. But if we're going to live into this life given to us by the resurrected king, then we have to teach and be taught. And that has to be something that's not just with our minds, but, but with our bodies and with our habits and with our schedules and with our whole vision of how we think about life, what really counts and what really matters. And as we seek to do all this, to participate in the mission of making disciples by going, by baptizing, by teaching. Lastly, we're given this amazing promise in verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That he is with his worshiping and hesitant, sometimes doubting people. That he's with us each step of the race as we go, as we baptize, as we teach and as we learn that the cosmic king with all authority is with us all the days. A question that I've been wrestling with this past week, a question that I've heard expressed many, many times before, maybe it's a question that you've asked before, sometimes I've heard it asked with great, great frustration. Why doesn't God just complete his mission? Why does he use us at all? Especially when you consider the colossal failures that we could enumerate of the history of the church. A few weeks ago, um, I came across an article about a man named Dick Hoyt. Uh, maybe you've heard of him. Uh, Dick and his son Rick were famous for uh, running uh, marathons together, particularly the Boston Marathon, though they participated in races throughout uh, the country. Uh, Rick, or Dick just recently passed away at 80. Um, when Dick's son Rick was born, there were complications at birth 
And so Rick was born as a quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. And in 1977, Rick was about 15 years old and Dick was around 40 years old and they ran in their first race together. Uh, Dick was not really a runner, but he pushed Rick in his wheelchair for five miles and they came in next to last place. Despite that, there was a great connection that was formed as they did that race together. And so uh, from 1977 until 2014, Dick and Rick participated in 1,100, over 1,100 races. They completed 72 marathons. Like, take that in. <laughs> Dick pushed, pulled, and carried Rick through six full Ironman triathlons. If you don't know what an Ironman triathlon is, it's considered by many one of the toughest athletic uh, competitions there is. It's a 2.4 mile swim followed by a 112 mile bike followed by a full marathon of 26.2 miles and Dick pushed, pulled, and carried Rick to complete six of them. And as you could imagine, I mean, reading these articles and watching like clips of them and looking at pictures was incredibly moving to say the least. Because wherever they are, they are there together. They receive awards together. They are running together and, and you know, dad is pushing and there's, there's Rick right in front along for the ride. Uh, they are biking and, and Dick is climbing a hill and right behind him attached to the bike is Rick. Uh, they're swimming and Dick is just like ferociously swimming ahead and then there's this little rope and there's a dinghy <laughs> and Rick is being pulled along for the ride. An obvious question would be, Dick, why not go alone? Why not race without Rick? He's actually been asked that before. If you wanted to do it faster, you could probably go faster. No way. He wants to do it with his son. It's the whole point. Do you know that from the very beginning, when God created the world and he made human beings, he made us as royal sons and daughters to share in his mission. And while we sinned and, and we rejected God, God did not give up on us and he did not give up on his plan. No, this is a God who voluntarily binds himself to his people, this thing in the Bible that's called a covenant. And so we see God calling people to himself like Abraham and Moses and Israel and David and through lots of lots of messy situations, God remains faithful and he continues to carry his people. And he tells Abraham, right? He says, I am with you and I am going to bless the world through you. He tells Moses when he's commissioning Moses to share in his mission and Moses is basically saying, I don't want to go. I'm not an articulate person. Please don't send me. And God says, you're going to go to Egypt and you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go and I will be with you. 
You see, the Bible tells the story of God who refuses to give up on his world and on humanity and on his people, who's so committed to his mission that in and through Jesus Christ, he enters the world, identifies with us in our sin and our failure and our brokenness, goes to the cross and dies for us so that we can be restored to him, that we can be resurrected, that we can be sons and daughters who participate in his mission. The whole point is not just to get it done, it's to get it done with us. Do you realize that the, what Jesus is giving us in this text is not merely a command, but it is a gracious gift that God calls you, he invites you, he dignifies you to share in his mission. The invitation of this text this morning is pretty simple. For some, it is the invitation, really perhaps for the first time, to actually receive the welcome and the grace to be identified with Jesus and all that he's done and all that he is for you. To come into his kingdom and to learn from him. For others, it is the invitation to take seriously what it means that Jesus is the resurrected king, to take serious his power and his lordship and his promise that he, the cosmic king, is with you. And so therefore, go and make disciples. Amen. It is our practice each week that whenever we hear the word of God, we don't want to just walk away as if God has not said anything, as if God has not spoken to us. And so let's take a few moments to pray and to respond to the living God and his word, to, to confess our sins, to ask for his help. We'll spend a few moments in silent prayer and confession and then I'll, I'll lead us in a moment's time. Let's pray.